let's talk about a little bit 2021. Because as we approach 2021, some big changes are very slowly happening. Um, you know, the pandemic seems to be, well, the building sale, number one, that's going to happen actually in December, where we'll talk about that. Um, if if we accept the offer that's being presented to us, I think it's going to introduce a change uh, to our ministry that is really exciting and give us brand new ministry opportunities for the proclamation and for serving people according to the gospel um, in our neighborhood where the church presently is. I'm not going to say any more than that, but it's a pretty interesting that it's 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 going to be interesting, but it's going to cause us to sort of rethink um, how do we engage in ministry, and that's already being forced upon churches all over the world because of this pandemic. This pandemic is changing our culture, and something that we have to be really cautious about is how this pandemic is teaching us to deprioritize our faith, primarily by not meeting together. And and I, by that, I don't just mean a, a large group, um, but even smaller groups. Um, as the, as the virus increases and you might get, you might be, be able to see smaller groups of people, but then that gets squashed with something like a lockdown where you're not, where you become totally isolated within the, within the, um, our cultural system. This pandemic is sort of teaching us to be okay with that. And we really shouldn't. I know many of you aren't, and we get tired. We're, we're, I think we're all getting just exhausted by this whole thing, but this deprioritization of faith is sort of in a sense, um, saying, well, you know, you used to go to church on Sundays, but now you can just watch from home in the comfort of your, of your home in your pajamas. Isn't that great? And scripture would say, well, you know what else is even better? It's meeting together for worship. <laughs> it's being together to proclaim the goodness of God. Um, and, there, and there's something about uh, our physical being that, that really craves that. Um, and this pandemic is, is, is pushing against that craving pretty harshly. Um, the deacons and I are working on a plan to implement ways of being able to meet together, at least in small groups, and be discipled and, and, um, and engage these practices in the new year. So you can keep your eyes out for, for more information about that. But to, uh, for today, I'd like to recenter ourselves and remind us of what the mark of a healthy church truly is is according to scripture. And this is uh, this is uh, pertinent for us today because it's it's hasn't really been mentioned. It's uh, it's anniversary Sunday, I, I guess, technically. And I can't remember how many I can't remember the anniversary that it is, I think, I think that it is well it might be 130 years now. But you can see you can see how much I really pay attention to dates and birthdays and stuff just by just by this. But we have been a church for a really long time, and so reminding ourselves of 
this is what scripture says is really important for the church to be the church, for the church to live out its mission in the world. We should, if scripture says that type of stuff, we should really pay attention to it so that we can live into those things, so that we can take heed of what the scriptures say and put the, put it into practice. And consistently, we see in scripture uh, that, that churches are where people come together indwelt by God's spirit, uh, transformed by his grace, who gather together in worship and then scatter to live out their faith in their individual local contexts, living on mission to see God's relational reign over all of creation grow, which means seeing people get to know him as Savior and Lord, get to know Jesus in a more deep and intimate way and dedicate their lives to him because of what he has done for them out of a response to his grace. So that's sort of what the church is, but what are the marks of that? What are, what are things that we can look at to say, okay, we are on the right track, growing as individuals in the faith and then growing as a community of faith into more Christ-like, uh, into a more Christ-like community. The beginning of 1 Thessalonians gives us a really good hint towards this. And so we'll start in the greeting. It says, Paul and Silas and, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church in, of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now that's a really interesting uh, that's a really interesting introduction because it's both located and not. It gives a, it gives a physical location of, of who's being greeted. It's to the church, number one. So it's to the people of God. And those people of God are in Thessalonica. They're, they are Thessalonians. So it'd be like, like Paul saying to the church of the Hamiltonians um, for our context. But then he adds... Uh, something else. He says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're both the people of God in Hamilton, in Thessalonica, but you're also in God, in Christ. You There is something about being a part of the church where you get to share in God's life with God. And we're actually told in scripture that we are uh, united with Christ, that we have union with Christ, that we share in his life, and it's through Christ that we have relationship with the Father. And so right off the bat, Paul says, hey, remember this, you're the church and you're in Thessalonica, but you're also in the Father. You're also in God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and to you, grace and peace. Wow. We could spend actually quite a bit of time just talking about what does it mean to be, to have union with Christ and to receive your identity from Christ. We'll save that for another day though, but something that you can think about maybe this week. Let's get into the really core passage, uh, the core part of this. Uh, verse two, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We, they, they, Paul and Silas and Timothy think about this Thessalonican church, these, this, these Christians in Thessalonica, 
And he says, I always thank God for you. There's something about this church that Paul doesn't just see as positive, but but he sees as being praiseworthy and, and something that other churches really should emulate. And by praising them, he is trying to encourage them to continue living in their faith and in the, in the profound way that they seem to uh, be starting. Now, some of the background is that Paul is writing to this church shortly after its founding. So this is really a church of brand new Christians, not Christians who have, who have been around for 40, 50, 60 years, but people who just have come to faith in, in, in Jesus and committed their lives to him as Savior and Lord. And now they're trying to figure out what that, does that look like in practice? And Paul is writing to them to tell them, here's what you're doing really well. Here's some things that you're maybe not doing so well and you need some encouragement in. And I'm going to help you to, uh, to gain a better footing in your faith so that you can live in, in the full measure of what it means to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I, th- I think of you and I remember you and, and I thank God for you at all times, constantly keeping them in prayer. And he says more about this remembering. He says, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor produced by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Three phrases, work produced by faith, uh, labor promoted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. And I would submit to you that these are really three key markers of a healthy church, faith, hope, and love. And if you read, if, if you've been around the church for any length of time, or if you go through and read his letters, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, I think it actually shows up in Galatians as well, in Galatians 5. Um, and these, the, the, the Colossians and 1st and Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, if you, if you dive into them, you'll see this faith, hope, and love theme come up again and again and again. Because for Paul, this is really foundational. This is, this is a foundational idea that you have, if you have faith, you'll have love and you'll have hope. And these three intertwine together in a way that, that shapes the, the foundation of how we are to practice our faith, that our works are to be produced by our faith, that we have love, but it's, and it, it, it prompts labor, laborous toil, really. We'll get into that. And our hope is in, our hope, which is in Jesus, inspires us to endurance, no matter what comes at us in life. Faith, hope, and love, so important. Now this, these three, well, this really, this, this verse three is going to be our theme verse for 2021. And we're going to take a good, long, hard look at how our faith is doing, how our love is doing, and how our hope is doing, especially in the midst of a, of a pandemic that is trying to, that, that Satan, I think, wants to use to attack each of those things in all churches around the world. So we're going to structure really our calendar year, next year, our ministry year, looking at these. What does it mean? What does it 
what, what do each of these have to say to our church and how can we live into them more fully to become deeply rooted in our faith so that we can have these labors that are prompted by love, this fruit, this fruit of love that develops um, and, 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 and gives us the endurance by our hope to continue on with what God has for us in the future. But let's take a look now at each of these three aspects. Work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. We have to be really careful with this phrase because it can easily slide into think into sort of flipping them around that it, or making it a command that if we have faith, we will have very specific works. Um, and, and saying, well, you know, if you, if you, if you begin to think that way, you're actually going to forget about the faith part eventually and just focus on the works part, because that's actually the easy part. Doing the good works is really easy. And this is why our culture is really confused about, well, if I'm a good person, I get into heaven. And that's, that's actually, that's, that's, that's not how that works. We'll get in, we'll actually, I'll, I'll return to that in a, in a few minutes. Our faith produces good works, but we don't want to focus on the works. We want to focus on the faith so that we can have that, those deep roots to be able to then work from. Um, you can think of it as a tree. You want deep roots for a tree to be able to get water. And by that, it will be able to produce fruit, but without the deep roots, no fruit will come of it. The same is true for us. Faith comes first and then works flow from that. And now well, we can, we can sort of ask the question then, well, what fruits or what works are we talking about? Let's use the, the works. What works are we talking about? And what was Paul talking about for these Thessalonians, for this church um, of the, of the Thessalonians? Well, he says it later on in the chapter. He describes in verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, I think I mispronounced that, but um, biblical names, am I right? <laughs> it says, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't have to say anything about it. For they themselves report the kind of reception that you gave us. Well, that's interesting. So part of these works are actually the reception that the Thessalonians gave to the apostles. Well, to the to, to Paul and to the people with Paul. And he goes on to describe this even more. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What are the core works that Paul is saying, hey, this is where I want to encourage you. You have works produced by faith. And what's the core work? It's repentance. It's turning away from idols, number one, and then serving the living God. And by serving the living God, it means living a, offering your life as a living sacrifice, Paul says in Romans. But it also means loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule. Love God and love 
your neighbor. Later, Paul will actually get into condemning idle and lazy busybodies who aren't living their faith. And so this work of turning from idols and serving the living God is the core of what he has in mind. It's not just random little good deeds. It's the, a full orientation of our lives away from things that draw us from God and towards God himself and serving him and sharing his message of, of grace with the entire world, sharing the message of our crucified king. And it says, you know, that you've come to be known everywhere. And he goes on to describe actually how they have been very vocal about sharing their faith. This, this seems to be one of those works of evangelism. Our faith making Jesus the center of our lives, seeking to serve God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strengths. If that's really at the center, we will not be able to help but talk about Jesus so that more and more people can come to know him. And we can't but help to completely orient our lives around what he says is how we ought to be living. Work produced by faith. Turning from idols and serving the living God. Next he goes on to labor prompted by love. And by labor, he means not just, again, not just little good works here or there. He's talking about toilsome, unceasing hardship for the sake of loving another person. Toilous, unceasing hardship. And this is, this is, this is what agape love is. We've mentioned um, before, we've, we've taken dives into this, that the word that is often used for love in the New Testament is agape. And it's the sense that agape has is a self-sacrificing love that wants to see the best for another person. Even to the point of, of denying ourselves for their sake. It's not just good deeds, it's a life committed to being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And Paul holds himself up as an example of this, of, of, of being someone who has given his life to Jesus for the building up of others. So he talks about this starting in verse um, 7. He says, instead we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you. Um, we just had a, uh, had a baby and so that really strikes home for us because um, Elizabeth, well, any, 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 new, any new mother that you'll look at is just exhausted because they have to serve this little child by giving of themselves constantly throughout the day to the point where it's just at the end of the day, you're depleted totally. Paul says, this is how we were with you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, we cared so we cared for you because we loved you so much. And we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. Surely you remember our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden 
on anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And this is what Paul says, you know, labor prompted by love goes out on the line for another person. But it's exactly this. It's to encourage, to confront, and to urge other people to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. And then he says um, something that I think is every pastor's hope. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as, but as it actually is the word of God, which is, in te- which is indeed at work in you who believe. This is, this is the hope of every sermon that I don't, that I don't share that other pastors that you listen to, that we don't just want to share our random opinions. We want to tell you what the word of God says so that it can speak into your life um, and and transform you from the inside out by its by its message and by the power of the Spirit who wrote it and who is working through it even now. We want you to hear God's word and then put it into practice. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. Receive the word of God, which you hear from us. But it's not our word. This, this, these scriptures aren't my word. They're God's. It also gives you a good perspective on how do you handle this book. But anyways, at the heart of this phrase, labor prompted by love, is the idea that our love is formed by Christ's love for us. That Christ reveals what God's love for us is like. That love is shaped like the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the ultimate labor prompted by love. God says, I love you so much that I will send my son to die on the cross to take, a, to, to take away the penalty of sin that you deserve, to take it on himself so that you don't have to. And by trusting him and engaging in relationship with him and obeying him, we're able to then have relationship with the Father because, because by our faith, our, the, the wounds of, of sin are healed and we're given a new identity and we're called a new creation. Paul says, the old is gone, the new is here because we've been reconciled to God through Christ. The cross is the ultimate labor prompted by love and it's also the kind of life that Christians are called to live. We are called to be to, to be cruciform people, that is, conformed to Jesus' cross, as well as Christoformed people, people who are conformed to Jesus, to Christ. Cruciformed and Christoformed are who we are called to be, shaped Our lives should be cross-shaped and dedicated to Jesus. Jesus even says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's That's not easy. 
It is a toilsome, unceasing hardship for the sake of another. But it's what we're called to do. And it says actually in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 9, he, uh, Paul says, you, About your love for one another, we don't need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. God will teach us how to love like this. If we allow him, God will teach us how to love like this. To love self-sacrificially, to give ourselves up, and, it'll, and it will be just like a, a parent with a new child, where your heart just opens up to possibility and and wanting to see the best for this for this little human but god will do that with us when we receive new birth in christ when we become a new creation as we seek to love um, others it will cause us to actually seek to love them in a way that is that will feel toilsome and unceasingly hard but we shouldn't be surprised by that because it's what Christ did for us as he marched to the cross and experienced death for our sake. And he says, you know, this is the, this is the kind of life I, I, I designed for you to live that I want for you to live a cruciform life. A life of love dedicated to other people, not dedicated to yourself. The work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in Christ. Endurance inspired by hope in Christ. Endurance has a has a sense not of passivity, but of sort of fortification of digging in. So as you have works produced by faith and you have labor, toilsome labor prompted by love, you dig in because of your hope. You fortify for the long haul. And that hope is a, is a confident certainty, not an uncertain optimism. Christian hope is not sort of, oh, I, I, we, we often say, I hope for the best. I hope for the best in this situation. And what are we actually saying? We're sort of saying we're optimistic, but we're uncertain. And that's, and that's sort of as far as we'll go. But our hope in Christ should be confident and certain because um, because what God promises is is certain to come true and the ultimate Christian hope lies in Christ's second coming and this is what Paul describes quite in a in a bit of a detailed way from chapter 4 verse 13 all the way to the end of the book he talks about death and about the hope that we have as Christians um, because of our faith in Jesus. That we don't grieve like those who have no hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So we have a hope that we'll be able to see these people again. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, well, he goes on, I'm going to actually skip this. He goes on to describe, um, describe the sort of 
process of what it's going to be like, um, and and uh, there's there's all sorts of debate about this passage. But he ends by saying, "Therefore, encourage one another with these words." He wants our hope to actually be an encouragement to each other within the church. Our confident certainty about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will do, our confident certainty will rub off on each other if we let it. And so we encourage one another with these words. But that's really importantly, gives purpose to life. Because if Christ is coming, we better live like Christ is coming. If Christ is truly coming, it gives a little bit of urgency because we don't know the day or the hour that it's going to happen. This is, this is in chapter 5. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We don't know the time or the hour, and so we need to prepare right now, today, as though Jesus is going to come back later this afternoon, or this evening, or, or tomorrow. Christ is coming, so live like it. And that means, that means also caring really deeply about people who are far from God and wanting them to know him and to repent, to, to turn away from idols and dedicate themselves to the living God so they can join him in eternity. It says, in it, again, verse 4 of chapter 5, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. It shouldn't surprise us. We know it's coming. It shouldn't surprise us. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. In other words, you know the day's coming, so wake up. <laughs> wake up. The day is coming, and indeed is nearly here. Wake up. Orient your life towards God. Stop getting pull the way towards idols, towards things that Satan would use to break your relationship down with God, that would stop you from being fully obedient to him. There's all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of stuff that can take that place in our life. Wake up. Don't be asleep. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. The fact that Jesus is coming soon should really give us a little bit more um, oomph in our step to want to see people come to know him, to dedicate their lives to him, 
to accept his grace and be transformed by his spirit. Because that's how you get into heaven. It's not good works. God does not, well, when you get in, when you are sitting there in front of Jesus on the judgment day, he is not going to say, he's not going to bring out a list of all the good things you did and all the bad things like Santa Claus and say, oh, I wonder how these all weigh out. He's going to say, okay, did you know me? Did you trust me as the starting point? Did you obey me? Did you follow my commands? Did you do what I said you should do? Did you live as the human being that I designed for you to live? It's not about being a good person or about doing those good works. That's not how we're saved. We're saved by, by, uh, by grace through faith in Jesus. We're saved by the grace of God, not because of anything that we have done or deserve. We, we, don't, we don't deserve salvation. But God loves us so much, he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could have it. So that we could have redemption and become a new creation and, and, and live the fullest of what it means to be a human being. And so Paul reminds us right at the end here, wake up, <laughs> wake up, protect yourself from, from, from having this thief come at the night because you're a person of the day. You should be awake and put on the breastplate of faith and love that is clothe yourself with Christ-like self-sacrifice and then put on that helmet of hope which should guard your mind from all these things that want to that 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 would uh, want to draw your mind away from God. And that verse nine through eleven really is a great description of of our of the celebration of life that is communion. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. This is what, this is what Jesus came to do. He died for us so that we may live together with him. And that with him is not just tomorrow, it begins today. We get to live with him reconciled today. We get to be participants in God's life today. We have union with Christ and we are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus today. This is what communion celebrates. And so if you have your elements, you can take them out. Because communion is celebrating and proclaiming Christ's death until he comes to remind us of these things. It's sort of a meal that should wake us up and remind us to put on the breastplate of faith and love and to put on this helmet of hope. Because we celebrate in communion Christ's life given for us 
so that we can go from God's table to live our lives in him and for him. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and breaking it, giving thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And after the supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And friends, whenever we eat of the bread, and drink of that cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So wake up. Dedicate your lives to Jesus. Come to him. Repent of idolatry, of putting things at the center of your life instead of God. Push those out of the way and allow God's spirit to indwell you and transform you so that when this day comes that Jesus does come again, you won't be caught off guard and you'll live forever with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your table, for the bread and the cup that reminds us of your covenant with us that is unbreaking And I thank you that your, your very speaking is a promise to us. And that we know for certain, with hope, that you are coming again. And so, Father, I pray that you would wake us up this morning. That if we haven't placed our trust in you, that you would shake us to our core so that we would wake up, that we would realize that it's a day and that would force us to be sober and help us to put on faith and love as our breastplate and the hope of our salvation as a helmet. And for those of us who have been, who are Christians, who have been Christians for a long time, but whose faith, hope, and love maybe have been waning or have waned in different ways, particularly during this season, I pray that you would quicken our hearts to, to uh, reprioritize our relationship with you, again putting on the faith, faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet so that we can, excuse me, be people who just as this text in First Thessalonians says, your word says, that we'd be people who would have works produced by faith, labor prompted, promoted, prompted by love, and endurance inspired by our hope in you. And I pray, Father, that these marks of a church 
would be the marks of our church by your grace and by the power of your spirit in us. I pray that you would make us a people of deep faith, of self-sacrificial love, and of hopeful endurance. So that those around us, both Christians and not, would look at our church and say, those are, those are people who live out their faith in Jesus. Those are people who we want to, we want to know what, what message it is that they have to share. And give us courage, Father, in those times when we are given the opportunity to share our faith, to talk about our relationship with you, and to invite other people into relationship with you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.